Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, lead pastor here at Encounter. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Just before we begin the brand new series that we have for you this morning, I want to just highlight one of those items that Brianna mentioned about our worship times coming up for that weekend only, 9, 10, 20, and 11, 40. See, the reason for that and why we're doing that is because we're, we're actually making room, we're building capacity for what we believe God is going to bring us over 900 people on that weekend alone. And we're so thrilled, we're so excited for that, but it also means we're going to have to retool a couple of things. Because last year when we did this event, it was actually so incredibly packed, especially during the, uh, the 1045 worship experience, that this room was so filled, like wall to wall, front to back, that we had about 40 people show up walk in, see that there was not a seat for them, and actually just leave. In fact, some cases they checked their kids out of kids' ministry and just went home. And we weren't able to tell them about the love of Jesus in their life because we literally did not have space. So we thought, hey, this year it's going to be different. So it's going to be a little weird, and I just ask you uh, to kind of hang with during that season. Uh, I also want to uh, ask you that unless you are bringing a friend or a neighbor, somebody who's never been here before, please, please, please come to the 9 or the 1140 because that 1020 spot is going to be is going to be a happening place to be. So 9 and 11.40, unless, of course, you're serving at 10.20. Okay, that's fall launch stuff. Today, we start off this brand new series, very, very provocatively titled, Quit Church. And that title actually came from, okay, let's not get too excited about that, all right? Uh, that title actually came from, uh, from a book I uh, passed by or somebody gave me one time called Quit Church by Chris Songson. And I thought, hey, it's provocative, but digging into it a little bit, I thought, man, this is, this is some really good stuff. You have to hear my heart starting off because I, I love the church. I love this church. In fact, last week I wasn't speaking, but I still came to church and many of you are like, hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I like you people and I prefer your company. Accept that, okay? I like it here. I love this church. In fact, I love the church. I've committed my life to making sure that as many people as I possibly can get connected to the body of Christ, the local church. In fact, if you're just passing through here today, and this isn't like home for you, Grand Rapids isn't home for you, wherever you're going back to, whatever church, I'm probably going to love that one too. I love the church. But quit church is about how there's just some aspects of church, some elements, some things, some ways that we've been doing church that we should probably consider quitting. So, for example, one of those in a later series or in a later uh, message in, in the series is going to be about how we're going to quit having church friends. Because Jesus came with abundant life, life to the fullest. He came so that we would invest in community. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with just having some casual people to say hey to on the weekends, a familiar face. Nothing, of course, wrong with that. But if all that's what community is, listen, you have missed a huge part of what it means to be the church. And so that's something that we're going to have to quit in order to group more intentionally, invest into community. Today is the starting point. Today's part one. Today we're just kind of kicking it off. So today, the part one of this series is going to be about how we worship weekly. And kind of as we get into it, I want to tell a story. When I was hanging out at a friend's cottage, and that's the best kind of cottage in the world, a friend's cottage. So you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to take care of it. It's like boats and pools, best 
best to have friends with them. And so I'm hanging out at a friend's cottage. That's not relevant for anything. I don't know why I said that. But, but like I'm playing the dock, jumping into the trampoline, you know, where you rocket the kids into the air. And that's a good time. Kids are about four, or, four and six at the time. And so they get the idea they're going to rocket dad in the air. And I'm like, good luck. So they get together, you know, one, two, three, they jump and the timing is all off because, you know, they're four and six. And, and instead of rocketing, I kind of just like flail my arms and, and fall back. But because of how extremely coordinated I am in my flailing of the arms, I knock off my glasses and they land somewhere in the lake bottom. I can see nothing without my glasses. And people, my friends, found that out when they shouted from shore, hey, do you want us to throw you some goggles? And I'm like, I can't see my alarm clock from this far away. Goggles are not the problem, right? Plus, there's like lake bottom is all murky. I can, there's no way I'm going to be able to. I'm out there, and I'm like with my feet in my hands, like looking around for my glasses, thinking that the vacation, the trip, is over before it even began. I'm not going to be able to see. I'm not going to be able to do anything. I'm useless this whole time. My wife is going to have to drive me around. I'm not going to be able to play games with the kids because I'm going to be like, have to get this close just to see the Uno card before I play it. That's not going to be any fun. And I'm looking at this thing going, you have no idea how much you depend on something until it's gone, until you lose it, until you have to go without it. And some of you have that experience. Maybe another lake was involved or a pool. You jump in the water and, and realizing just a moment too late, that sinking feeling, your phone is still in your pocket before they're waterproof for obvious reasons. And you're like, no. No phone calls, which is fine because like nobody uses their phone to call anyway. No email, no text, no looking up anything, no social media. Your leg does that like phantom vibrating thing because your body is like, we've depended on that phone for so long, we can't deal with you not having it. You have no idea how much you depend on something. You have no idea how much you depend on someone until they're gone. The way that they always knew exactly what to say. They would always pick up the phone or return a text no matter what else was going on in their life. They always knew when to stay silent and just listen. They would always show up. You have no idea how much you depend on someone until they can no longer show That's what we're going to talk about this morning in a very difficult passage that we have in front of us today. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. We also heard that there's a phone-friendly church, so you can look it up, preferably using the, the Bible app. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 17. That's the second book in the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus. In Exodus chapter 17, uh, what we have to know is that God's people, the Israelites, they were just enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. And God just, uh, the 10 plagues, right, the gnats and the hail and the darkness brought them out of Egypt. And now they're in this like, middle kind of territory, wandering around in the desert. And they're wandering around this middle territory when this happens. In verse 8 of Exodus 17, it says that the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, there's like so much there. Before we go on, I just kind of want to lay a couple of things down for us. So we don't totally know why the Amalekites attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. 
We don't exactly know why, but we can kind of guess. Rephidim was, uh, was a oasis, which means in the middle of a desert, in this hot, arid, dry place where nothing really grew, there was an underground spring that put up fresh water. And so there was some vegetation around. You could, you could drink the water. You could water your animals. You could do what you needed to do. And the Amalekites made a home out of that place. And now the Israelites show up, and there's tons of them. There's, ton, there's so many people, and there's so many animals, and now those people and those animals are drinking your water, what your people have depended on for a long time. It's, it makes them understandably angsty. So what the Amalekites do is they get together and they're going to attack the Israelite people, except what's so, what's so bad about the attack, what's so shameful about this kind of attack, we find out from a different story in the Bible, Deuteronomy 20, 25, we find out that the way that they attacked the Israelites was actually in the most shameful ways possible. They actually attacked from behind, and it says that they like, they like nipped off the stragglers that walked slower than the rest of the group. So as the Israeli people started moving, there were some people that just couldn't keep up with the rest. There were some people that maybe started to lag behind, some of the elderly, maybe some of the little kids and some of the caregivers for those little kids that just took a little longer to get to where they're going than everybody else. And the Amalekites came from behind, unprovoked, and attacked those, the most helpless in the group, and this is a shameful, shameful thing. And so we're going to see that the Israelites respond. We're going to see a battle take place because that can no longer continue unaddressed. And so one of the most beautiful things about reading the Bible is about just how, how many application points there are today. And I hope that when you read the Bible, you read it as not just a story, not just the story, but actually that it's your story as well. And so especially in the book of Exodus, there's so many like parallels to, to the world today and there's so many like application points that you can pick up. And, and, and we want to do that. We don't want to neglect that at all. There is these application points. And so when you're reading the book of Exodus in particular, I hope that you read it as your story. I hope that you read it as that time that God took his people that were enslaved in Egypt. And you're going, that's me. I was enslaved to my previous world. I was enslaved to, to sin ahead of me and I was incapable of doing nothing good on my own. And then God, God just decided to rescue me. And God decided through a show of force, uh, forgiveness, grace, in this case, these plagues to just unilaterally rescue me from this life of slavery that I was in. And God decided to rescue me and not just call it good and done there. Like, like you're forgiven, you're all set. But no, no, he actually is bringing me to a place. He's bringing me to a place in the book of Exodus called the promised land. It's generic, but also specific enough to know that it's good and it's whole and it's complete and it's perfect. In the same way today that, that God is bringing us out of slavery, he, he conquered death, he conquered sin, but, but we're like caught up in this middle area and he's bringing us into to the kingdom of God or sometimes Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. But we're not quite there yet. We're in this kind of middle territory where life at times is hard and battles take place like against the Amalekites. But it's critical, church, to our reading of the Bible, to your reading of the Bible, 
that you don't make the mistake of thinking that this is about the Amalekites. It was then, and God had his reasons for dealing with them then. But today, we don't read it as just a battle against the Amalekites, although the battle is no less real today. I don't want you to think that God is asking you to be in battle, to be in war against a particular group of people, the Amalekites or any other Middle Eastern people group. I don't want you to mistake the battle for being won against any other alien or immigrant within your gates. The battle is not against them. In fact, Paul says in the New Testament, he goes, the battle is just every bit as real as the one then, except the battle in Ephesians 6 is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness in this present world and the forces of evil within it. The battle is every bit as real today. And if you're kind of like jotting down notes here, if you're writing things down, you want to have something to bring in with you this week, you already know this first main point, that life is a battle. That many of you are fighting a struggle, fighting a war, that the people around you, maybe even sitting right next to you, know almost nothing about. Life is a battle. Make no mistake about it. It is a battle today to identify those areas of our heart marked by sin that simply do not belong and root them out. That is a battle, very real today. It is a battle to forgive the one who cheats on you. It is a battle to love the person that God put in your life that just seems so completely unlovable. It is a battle. Every second of every day, it's a battle not to go on social media and to let envy have a, have a, have a room in your heart that says, why them and not me? It's a battle to look onto others and to not have this sense of, of, of self-pride well up and to say, I'm better I know more than everybody else. Life is a battle, but the struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against sin itself, but it's a very real battle. But listen, you are not in this alone. There's help. Listen, continuing on in the story, in verse 9, a battle is about to take place, and this is what happens. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. This is the very same staff that he put into the ground, parted the Red Sea, side to side. They walked through on dry land. Verse 10, So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and her went up to the top of the hill. Now this is bizarre. Verse 11, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But when he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So as long as, long as to remember it, as long as Moses had his hands up, the people had the upper hand. It's dad joke o'clock, people. That's how you remember it. They went down, right? They went, the hands go down, and now they had the lower hand, and they started to lose. It's a weird story. 
It's kind of bizarre. And so people started speculating around this sort of thing to start to make sense of it and say maybe it's something enchanted or magical about the staff of God, right? After all, that was the one that he put in the ground in the, in the Red Sea part. Maybe it's something magical or mysterious about that. And it's like, no, no, no. The biblical authors made no, made no other record of, of saying that there was anything significant about the staff itself. So it probably has nothing to do with that. Other people said, what about the psychological benefit of somebody up on the hill? Like Moses has got his staff raised. He's like shoulder pressing his staff on the hill. And it's like, man, if that guy can do that, I can fight better in this struggle in front of me right here against this Amalekite guy. It's like, no, no, probably not. You'd probably be better served instead of paying attention to like what's going on over here to like maybe pay attention to what's going on right in front of you, right? Pay attention to the guy in front of you. It probably doesn't make sense as a psychological boost. If you've heard this passage taught previously, you have probably heard it said in reference to prayer, And there's a good reason for that. And I think that's a sound, that's a good application. So I've preached it that way. I'm not denying that at all. There's a huge history of uh, ancient Israelite people when they prayed using a particular posture, using the posture of hands raised. That's a super biblical thing that they, they definitely did regularly. And it kind of stands to make sense that as long as they were holding up their struggle, their battle up to God, he was providing the victory. If they weren't doing that, he no longer provided victory. The problem is, the problem is it doesn't actually say that he was praying. And the problem is also that when he lowered his hands down, it seemed to suggest then that he couldn't pray any longer or it was no longer as effective which really seems incongruous with the rest of Scripture, especially Jesus, who gave us this teaching that said, no, no, it doesn't matter what's happening on the outside. The most significant thing, right, is happening, what's happening on the inside. So it's not the posture of your body that makes the difference. It's the posture of your heart. But for Moses at that point, it was exactly the opposite. It was just the posture of his body. So I think that there was this element to it that was about like this connection to God, but the specific action It's just plain weird. Why would he care if the staff was raised up or lowered down? I think that God had something else for us even beyond lifting up our struggle, lifting up our battle in prayer. For instance, what's happened next? Verse 12. When Moses' hands grew tired... They took a stone, they, Aaron and Hur, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And and now with a little better angle and some leverage, Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And verse 13, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I have two words for you as a church today. The first one is going to be for everybody, for all of us, for everybody who hears this story, for everybody who's here listening, watching online, for for everybody who would come across the story. And the other one has to do with with more our church in particular. So I'm just going to kind of ask you if you're a guest with us, if you're not planning, if you're just like passing through okay, it's going to be a little weird like internal housekeeping time. You can kind of tune out for that one, but join us back at the song at the end. The first one, 
The first one is for, is for everybody who's ever going to hear this story. And, and I want you to notice something. Notice something that's not in the story. What's not included in the story is any details whatsoever about how the battle was won. I mean, this is one of the first skirmishes that they have. And so I'm wondering, like, where did Joshua come from? How did he become the general? I'm kind of wondering, like, like, what was his strategy coming into this thing? I'm wondering things as basic as, where, what did they fight with? They were like slaves in Egypt making bricks, like three chapters ago. And, and now they're all of a sudden fighting, like, what were they fighting with? Like a frying pan? I mean, how did, how did this thing happen? It says that they won with a sword. When did they take fencing lessons as they were baking bricks? I don't think that was included in the compensation package of being a slave in Egypt. You tend not to teach your people those things. How did this happen? And we get almost no details whatsoever about the battle itself. And that's the point that God wants to leave us with, all of us with. That the battle was not won on the field. The battle was won on the hill. God doesn't want you to get sidetracked or caught up in some of the details of the fight because he wants you to know who is fighting for you. We did that song, Dust to Dust, and that line so I also have to say, it's an encounter, original song, which means that our team actually did a retreat and they like wrote these, these words out and things like that. And it just, it just so happens to fit in really well as a, as a message for today, which is awesome. But, but that song lyrics about I have the victory because I know who is fighting for me. I think that one of the things that God does in the story is not give us details because we have a tendency to so get caught up in the details of the fight that we lose track of who on the hill is fighting for us. And the longer you follow Jesus, and this is some of the things that I'm finding in my own journey, the longer you follow Jesus and the more stories of God that you read in the Bible, and you start to be able to, to, to put things together, start to be able to make these connections between this story and that story and how you're looking back and going, man, all these different authors across thousands and thousands of years, but really stepping back. And there's really just one author behind it all, God himself. And it's his story. It belongs to him. And you can start to see that by noticing a few of the interconnected stories. For instance, it's important to know three things that the Old Testament was written in, in the language of Hebrew. The New Testament was written in a particular dialect of Greek called koine, just means common Greek. And it's important to know that right now we're speaking English today. That's the trickiest one I know. Uh, and we look back in this story and we can see the guy fighting down in the valley. We call him Joshua. In Hebrew, his name would have been pronounced and written as Yeshua. In the New Testament, when they refer back to Joshua, they refer to him by his Greek name, which would be Jesus. And in English, when we pronounce that name, we pronounce it Jesus. Which is why both of them, Joshua and Jesus, loosely translated interprets to save, Savior, Joshua, Jesus. 
And you start to get this awesome picture about how God is saying, listen, this is how it is. Right? This is how it was then, but that's only like looking through a glass darkly. That, that's only like the murky Dirk without glasses picture of, of what this thing is supposed to be like, Joshua fighting in the, ba- in the valley below. But listen, I want you to know, I want you to know that the battle is not won there. The battle is won up on the hill. I mean, Joshua fought that, but Jesus died on the hill. Jesus died on Calvary. Jesus, Jesus died, arms stretched out like Moses, Aaron, and her holding his arms stretched out. I want you to know not to get caught up in the details of the fight because you have to know who is fighting for you. You have to know that life is a battle and you also have to know that you don't fight alone. You fight with all the strength and power of Jesus Christ himself. His is the victory. Now that's the point that's just like, listen, that applies to everybody ever listening to this story for all times. That's the part I think that God looks back and he's like, yes. Like, I hope that people get it. I hope that you get that there is victory for you. But if I could like bring it back and just do a little like encounter, encountering business here. I think we also have to look at Aaron and her. Because these are guys that woke up that morning and Moses said, hey guys, we're going to go to the top of that hill. And they're going, it's the desert. It's 100 degrees in the shade. We're supposed to be fighting a battle. You want us to do what now? But they don't do that. Aaron and her, they just say, okay, sure. Wherever you go, I'm there with you. It's important for us to realize that, that, that Aaron and her are two guys that made a commitment before that day ever took place. They made a commitment to say yes, they made a commitment to say we are going to be men, we are going to be people that you can depend on. We're gonna be people that will show up no matter what. And everything changed as a result. I think that's why God includes that bizarre thing about how Moses has has to shoulder press his staff all day because he wanted Moses to know then and you and I to know today that life is a battle and you don't have to fight it alone. There are people around you who want to fight shoulder to shoulder alongside you against whatever it is that's battling against you. You don't do it alone. But this is part one of this series I'm quitting some things that maybe we need to quit about ways that we're doing church. And if I'm going to get a little real with you and get in your business a little bit and you might, you might be a little offended of this, you might, might be kind of off-putting and I'm willing to take that risk because I think that maybe some of us will be, will be convicted about this. Uh, part one of this challenge, the very first challenge that we're going to do throughout this four-part series is to worship weekly. Is that you are not alone in life's battle, but you do have to show up. So a little while ago, I came across this study by Lifeway, the people that do uh, this research about churches. And what they found is that the single greatest cause of the decline in attendance of church today has nothing to do with worship styles, organ, drums, pews, chairs, nothing to do with any of that. 
that has nothing to do with the decline of attendance in church in America. It has nothing to do with political engagement or disengagement. It doesn't have anything to do with controversial issues of the day. The, it's much more simple than all of that. The, the, most, the most common factor that pushes into the decline of attendance in church in America today is simply people who go to church less frequently. Just some math, if you got 200 people who attend every weekend, four out of four in a month, what that equates to is generally a 200 on average attendance. If half of them decide to go only three days a month out of four, all of a sudden your attendance drops over 12%. Same people, just going a little less regularly. What Lifeway found, Tom Rader found, beyond that is that is that 20 years ago, the average national attendance of people who went to church was something like three or four Sundays a month, weekends a month. They were there, almost always. Lately, since then, it's dropped to about two or maybe three weekends a month. And so the same people just like time, uh, attending far, far less. And what's lost in that is momentum. What's lost in that is relationships. What's lost in that is biblical literacy. What's lost in that is a regular rhythm of worship. What's lost in that is kids who grow up not really knowing church or knowing it as just something you go to when it's convenient. There's a lot that's lost within that. And so looking back at this, this is the real part for Encounter Church. I thought, well, where, where are we with all of this? And so as best as I could, trying to collect some of the data numbers, and I recognize pastor math is a super real thing, so I get that. But the best that I could come up with is saying, of the last six weeks, about half of us have attended three or more. Half of us have attended half of the weekend worship experiences that we've done in the last six weeks. About almost a third of us have done five or six. And I recognize, I recognize within that, I've been gone, as I said earlier. I mean, I, mean, I get it. It calls us away. Weather calls us away. Games call us away. Um, there's all kinds of factors, all kinds of things that call us away. In fact, you actually have a staff here at Encounter Church who gathers and, and prays regularly for it to rain on Sunday mornings. Just Sunday mornings, not afternoons, not, not elsewhere. But we've just noticed we've got an opportunity to tell more people about Jesus when it's a little sketchy outside. Not too terrible that we stay home, but just like terrible enough to convince us the other way. I mean, that's how passionate we are. That's how much we care. We want, we want to pour in. We want to invest. And so I just want to like put that out there as a challenge to say, hey, listen, listen, as you look back at attendance patterns, if you look back at where you've been prioritizing your time and some of the commitments that you make, is it possible that God could be asking you to be one of those like Aaron or hers to say, hey, listen, before anything comes up, before there's other options, before anything else, we're just going to pre-decide to be people who make this a commitment no matter what. I hope so. I hope so because life is a battle. I hope so because... If I'm completely honest with you, this week has just sucked. Encounter Church has seen more tragedy this week in terms of unexpected loss of life than in our previous eight and a half years as a church combined. Three people unexpectedly lost their lives. A 60-year-old man who just started attending Encounter, 
one and a half old baby and a mom married with grown kids. And that's just horrible. And so I'm just going to say one more time, even if you don't know what it is, the people sitting around you and even right next to you are fighting a battle that you may know nothing about. People are hurting. People are in pain. People are suffering. Life is a battle. You don't have to fight alone. But you do have to show up. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray to God together this morning. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we... uh, God, we thank you today that, Jesus, you're a God who shows up. God, we thank you for these stories, murky as they are, that point towards some hope and towards some resolution that you're a God who fights for us. And God, we thank you even more for that crystal clear demonstration of what you did on the cross, on the hill so long ago. Like Moses with arms stretched out wide, carrying the weight of all of our sin and all of our failure on your behalf, carrying the weight of death itself and burying it down the grave, down in the grave. God, you truly are fighting for us. God, we thank you. God, we ask as we uh, regularly together, we evaluate our time and our commitments together. God, I ask that whatever, whatever convictions come out of this, we know that are squarely from you, Holy Spirit, God-driven, Christ-centered. God, we pray all of this in you, our living hope.